John 10, 31 to 42, this is the word of Almighty God. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Will you pray with me? Lord God, again, we're grateful for your good gifts. There are so many. And now we're grateful for the good gift of your word that reveals to us your heart, your son, your identity, the gospel. Help us see you, see the gospel, and glorify you. Help us respond rightly. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. There are times when a person in the middle of saying something needs to stop and assess the implications of what's coming out of his or her mouth. Have you ever had that moment in your own life? There are times when one needs to seriously ask, Am I ready to deal with the impact of what I'm about to say? There are times when, as a parent, I might ask one of my children to seriously consider if they're ready to deal with the consequences of something they're about to say, if they should, in fact, finish a hasty thought. And having done many an hour of marriage counseling with couples in need, I can tell you, having people actually consider the import and impact of their words before hurling them at their spouse would go a long way toward making better marriages. You know, the wisdom of examining words before they're out there, it's true in lots of forms of communication. I can't tell you how many times I've had a text message all the way written out, ready to send, and then by the grace of God, paused to think. I've said something maybe in that text that was very true, but maybe not wise to say at that moment. Maybe it's something that goes on social media, a tweet, Facebook post. Sometimes God will help me, I don't know if he ever does this with you, but sometimes God will help me to recognize that my adding to a conversation online is not going to help anybody else or glorify him. And I'm also sad to say that there are many times when I have not considered that quickly enough. 
Fact is, when words come out of our mouths, they pop up on your feed, they're out there. People are going to hear them, they're going to see them, they're going to respond to them. You ever send a text you regretted? You ever write something down that got out there that you regretted? Sometimes we wish we had our words back, but it's too late. Other times, the words that come out of our mouths have a big dramatic impact, but we know that we stand behind every single syllable. As we pick up the passage here in John chapter 10, Jesus just said something that is huge and impactful. What Christ has said is going to deeply upset his hearers. It's going to cause a major conflict. And I will tell you that Jesus stands behind every single syllable. In the verses just before today's passage, the religious leaders approached Jesus in the December before his crucifixion. And they demanded that he tell them clearly whether or not he is the Christ. Jesus wouldn't use their wording, probably because he knew they didn't understand the true mission of the Christ. But Jesus said something even bigger, even more impactful. Jesus looked at these men and said, I and the Father are one. And in that tiny little sentence, Jesus spoke volumes. Jesus made it clear that he and his Father, they're not the same person. But the way that he said the word one indicates that he and his father are the same in their very essence, in their singular deity. Jesus just claimed to be God, just as exactly as much God as God the Father is God. Jesus doesn't claim to be the Father, but he claims that he and the Father are one, the one true God. Well, as we carry this event forward today, we're going to watch as the crowd threatens to try to kill Jesus. And the question is, will the Savior stand by his words? What do you think? You think he'll stand by his words? You bet he will. He stands by those words because those words are true. And God is going to call all of us to see what the Savior has claimed, to examine that claim, and to believe in Jesus. So let's get started. We'll find four points that you can write down in today's passage. Point number one. Believe that Jesus claimed to be God. Believe that Jesus claimed to be God. Look at 31 to 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Did Jesus really claim to be God? Some people out there would argue against it. But a fair examination of scripture should leave you without a doubt. Right here, the response of Jesus' enemies and Jesus' response to them is a certain clue that, yes, in fact, Jesus did claim to be God. The Jews around Jesus, they picked up stones to stone him. 
And, and this is a bigger move than you might think. Jesus and his hearers were standing in Solomon's colonnade, which is a roofed porch area near the, the eastern wall of the temple in Jerusalem. In that area, large stones, like stones big enough to throw and kill a man, probably weren't just laying around. So the Jews didn't just stoop down and pick up a handful of gravel. They had to run over to a section where building stones were piled up for construction purposes. The word that says they picked up the stones is actually a Greek word that means to carry something away. So they, people ran off, grabbed a load of pretty big rocks, and ran back to where Jesus was. They meant it. They were heated. The Roman government didn't allow the Jews to execute anybody. And while the crowd might get away with a riot, while they might even get away with a stoning, there were going to be consequences. But the people, including the religious leadership, were willing to live with that because they wanted Jesus dead big time for what he just said. And one has to love Jesus' response. I've done a lot of miracles, guys. Of course, right? Jesus had turned water to wine. Healed a man's servant from miles away with a word. Healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus walked on water, fed a crowd of 5,000 with one lunchbox, and gave sight to a man who had been born blind. We saw all these in John, besides a massive set of other miracles and healings that John doesn't record for us. So Jesus asked the crowd, all right, y'all, which one of those things I did make you want to murder me? The religious teachers let Jesus know they're not wanting to murder him for one of his miracles. Instead, they're eager to execute him for the crime of blasphemy. To blaspheme involves speaking something that is an ultimate insult against God. I remember a youth speaker referring to this as dissing God to the max. (laughs) You pick whichever definition you like better. The Jews believed that Jesus, when he claimed to be one with the Father, they said, that's blasphemy because Jesus is claiming to be God. Now note, this is not the first time Jesus has said a thing that identifies him as God and each time the Jews respond by wanting to kill him for blasphemy. In John 5, 17 and 18, Jesus answers, my father is working until now, and I am working. Then John says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Or John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus keeps repeatedly saying things that declare him to be God. And the Jews keep responding in exactly the same way. Leviticus chapter 24 verse 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So under the old covenant law, 
the nation of Israel was commanded to stone to death anybody in their community who blasphemed the Lord. They were, after all, the chosen nation in covenant relationship with God, set apart by God for the bringing of the Messiah into the world. And God's law allowed that nation zero space for toleration of sins that would bring the judgment of God down upon them. God had to preserve that nation until his plan to bring the Savior through the promised people at the proper time was carried out. That law for the chosen nation of of Israel under the theocracy, that was from God. It was perfect. Now, I'm not advocating a similar punishment for speech among nations today that are not Old Testament Israel, but you should understand that that law of God and all of the ways of God are perfect. It was absolutely perfect. Now, before we watch Jesus respond to the accusers, can we at least agree that their words make logical sense? You understand you can be logically sensible and wrong, right? If a premise in your argument is wrong, your, log- your argument may be logically valid but incorrect. For example, logical premise number one, all things that are round are made of green cheese. Number two, the moon is round, therefore what? The moon is made of green cheese. We all know this. That is a logically sound argument. It's wrong because the premise is wrong, but it's logically valid. I didn't plan that. That's not even in my notes. You guys should feel so blessed. In this instance, the Jews believe Jesus is not God. But they know for sure Jesus has claimed to be God. Thus, they assume he has committed blasphemy by claiming to be God when he's not God. They're wrong because they don't realize Jesus really is God. But they absolutely understood exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. And let me add that as we go forward... If Jesus was not claiming to be God, he would be morally obligated to correct their understanding of his words. <laughs> no, guys, you've got me all wrong. I'm not saying I'm God. That's crazy talk. If any of you attempt to declare me to be deity, I will correct you. Eventually. Okay, quickly. But in this instance, Jesus does not back off of a single syllable of what he has said and does not at all attempt to correct the conclusion that they've come to that he's saying he's God. So first, friends, believe that Jesus claimed to be God. And let that sink in. Let that sink in. Jesus unquestionably says to us, he is God in human flesh. That is a claim we cannot ignore. You could suggest that he's wrong about himself. Total wacko. You can suggest that he is intentionally claiming this when he knows it not to be true, which would be evil and demonic. Or... You can accept that Jesus really does know who he is 
And he's honestly communicating it to us. Jesus says he's God. What will you believe about him? Point number two. Believe Jesus has the right to call himself God. Believe Jesus has the right to call himself God. 34 to 36. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Jesus does not back off his words. In this odd reference to the Old Testament, Jesus points out that it is not an automatically illegitimate claim for a man to claim that the word God applies to him. The Savior is citing for us Psalm 82. And in that psalm, we read a poetical depiction of God sitting down at a council table with the rulers of the nation of Israel. And God makes it clear that these leaders have failed to do justice. They failed to lead toward righteousness. And instead, these evil leaders have taken advantage of the weak for their own gain. Let me add that leaders who are willing to disadvantage others for their own personal advantage are evil leaders. And leaders willing to disadvantage the weak and ignore the weak or to not give the weak fair and just treatment are evil leaders. Well, Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7, the Word of God says this, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. The Lord says of this group of evil leaders, unjust leaders, you are gods, the Hebrew Elohim. So is, the question we should be raising here in our little brains, is God suggesting that these men are deity? No, he's not. In fact, God then says they're going to die like any other men. Under his judgment. Remember this leaders in Israel led under the authority of God. And at many a place in Scripture, the word Elohim, the word that is translated God's here and in many other places, the word Elohim is often used for authorities and powers. Exodus chapter 22. Verses 8 and 9 is a great example where two different English translations will show us the word Elohim translated two different ways. In Exodus 22, verses 8 and 9, the ESV says this, If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Again, this is a picture of a thief being tried. But the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which is just as solid as the English Standard Version, translates the passage this way. 
in Exodus 22, 8 and 9. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hand on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Did you hear the difference? ESV says bring the person before God. NASB, New American Standard says bring him before the judges. The word, the Hebrew word behind both is Elohim. And the picture is a picture of a trial overseen by authoritative leaders, men who judge the people with the authority of God. So both translations, ESV and NASB, are accurate. In the law, God has allowed the word Elohim, God or gods, to be used metaphorically for people in power. God uses the word that way in Psalm 82, verse 6, which is what Jesus quotes at the angry crowd wanting to kill him. Why does Jesus do this? The Savior's making one of those comparisons, right? Those, those comparative arguments that we find in the scripture. Psalm 82, 6 metaphorically applies the word gods to bad human rulers. Exodus applies the word gods to good human rulers. That was clearly okay. Well, if it's okay there, then much more it should be right for the actual Holy One, the one set apart by God and sent by God into the world to be called the Son of God. Jesus is not saying that the men in Psalm 82 were deity. He's simply making the angry mob slow down and think for a moment before they lose control of themselves. He's showing there's a legitimate possibility for a man to have the label son of God applied to him. So believe Jesus has the right to call himself God. As the logical argument builds, this first move prevents us from saying that if Jesus is a man, he can't call himself the Son of God. The Savior proves that using this language is actually legitimate. Jesus also claims he's the one who has the true right to that title because he is unique. He's holy. He's set apart. He's sent by the Father. Before we move on, we also need to pause a moment on the phrase where Jesus says, and scripture cannot be broken. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, I think you should. What does Jesus mean about the Bible when he says scripture cannot be broken? What did he believe about the Old Testament scriptures? Jesus, in that little statement, is letting us know that he fully affirms the validity and total reliability of God's written word. Friends, the Bible's the word of God. It is truly inspired. It's without error. It's without the possibility of error. Jesus saw scripture as totally true and trustworthy. So must we. If you ever hear a person opposing the truthfulness, the inerrancy, 
the sufficiency, the reliability of Scripture, if you see somebody going against those, you are hearing somebody speaking in a way that is contrary to Jesus himself. If you hear somebody suggest that the Jesus they follow is not all about the Scriptures, you're hearing somebody who doesn't know the true Jesus. Why do we trust the Bible? Because Jesus trusts the Bible. Third point. Believe the works of Jesus prove that he's God. Believe the works of Jesus prove that he is God. Verses 37 through 39 Jesus says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So that last argument, the citation of Psalm 82, seems to me to be intended to slow the crowd down and make them think, right? It's hard to throw a stone if you're going, huh, which is kind of what Jesus was up to. Jesus wasn't there trying to argue the full case for the truth of his identity as the Son of God with that little sentence. He was showing this crowd that they did not have the biblical right to rule out the possibility of his claim. Now Jesus is going to remind them of the evidence that they cannot deny even if they want to ignore it. Verse 37 Jesus offers a simple, fair, logical claim. If Jesus is not doing the works of his father, the crowd shouldn't believe him. Say it another way. If Jesus is doing things that are not like God, not things only God can do, not things that glorify God, then perhaps the crowd has a point in not believing in him and stoning him. The alternative also must be true. If Jesus is doing the works of God, works that look like, smell like, sound like, feel like the things that God does, then the crowd is required to come to a different conclusion. Even if they don't want to follow Jesus, even if they don't believe Jesus' words, at least the crowd should believe his actions, his kindness, his miracles. If Jesus is doing the works of God, works only God can do, works that befit the nature and character of God, the crowd has no right to call him a blasphemer for declaring himself the Son of God. The question, of course, is whether or not Jesus has in fact been doing the works of God. Are the miracles of Jesus things only God can do? Are the miracles of Jesus things that match the nature and character of God? So let's ponder the miracles that we've seen. Back in John chapter 9, just a few months ago, as far as where Jesus is now here in chapter 10, Jesus gave sight to a man who had been born blind. This happened on the heels of Jesus declaring himself to be the light of the world. Is this A God thing. Well, when the nation of Israel was in the desert during their wilderness wanderings, 
God the Father led them. Do you remember how God led the nation through the desert? In the daytime, God led the people by a pillar of cloud. But at night, when people couldn't see, when it was dark, he was in a pillar of fire. God brought light into darkness. God brought sight where sight had not been. When Jesus healed the blind man, how did he do it? Do you guys remember how Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9? What he used? Spit and mud. Dirt, dust. Think back to creation. What did God use to fashion the first man, Adam? Dust. Jesus used the dust of the ground to make whole a man whose eyes were not functioning. Does the healing match the character of God? Does giving sight to the blind sound like a thing God would do? Multiple times in the book of Isaiah, God points to his plan to give sight to the blind. It's a mark of God defeating the darkness of the curse of man's sin. All the people who assessed the miracle of Jesus healing the formerly blind man said that this was unheard of. It was uncanny. Nobody had ever imagined anybody with the power to give sight to a man whose eyes had never once worked. Obviously, this miracle was something that could only be accomplished by the power of God. So ask yourself, was that miracle a God thing? You bet it was. It was a thing only God could do. It looks like the works of God in the past. It smells like the things God promised. This miracle testifies that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, God the Son. What about the other miracles? Do they feel like this too? Turning water into wine sure feels like the sweeter version of the power of God that turned the water of the Nile to blood, doesn't it? Healing a man's servant with a word sounds like something God would do with all of his let there be power. Healing a man who had been paralyzed for exactly 38 years might remind somebody that God led the nation into the promised land after 38 years of wandering the wilderness outside of Kadesh Barnea. You can see Deuteronomy 2.14 for that number right there. Feeding a massive crowd in a desert place might bring to mind God giving the manna to Israel in the wilderness. Walking across the sea might bring to mind the God who parted the Red Sea and walked a whole nation across. It is flat impossible for a thinking and open-minded person to deny that these miracles testify on Jesus' behalf. They show us that Jesus works the works of God. They show us that there's nothing wrong with Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus told his hearers, even if they wouldn't believe his words, they should hear the testimony of his works. Jesus said, I want you to believe my works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. By the way, that last claim, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father, that is ginormous. Jesus saying, oh guys, I want you to know the Father's in me, that may not shock somebody who's been paying attention, right? 
How else could a man do a thing that Jesus has done without being empowered by God? Everybody's, oh yes, God the Father is in him. But when Jesus adds that he is in the Father, there's Jesus keeping us from making a giant mistake about Jesus. Jesus is not suggesting he is a mere man empowered by God. No, 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 no. Jesus is claiming to be just as much God as God the Father is God. It's huge what Jesus just said. Believe the works of Jesus prove that he's God. Look at them honestly. Look at them openly. Everything here demands that you believe Jesus is truly God, truly man, God the Son. At the beginning of this book, John told us about Jesus. He says in John 1, 14 to 18, he had called the word God. And then he says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. After Jesus makes this big argument, the Jews again try to arrest him. Maybe they're not going to stone him this time. Maybe they're just going to drag him to a cell. But Jesus is truly God and truly man. And Jesus is not going to be captured apart from his willingly allowing it to take place. So Jesus just slips away from the angry mob. But the reaction of the crowd tells us something about humanity. Don't you think? People do not tend to assess their willingness to follow Jesus or to believe in Jesus based on evidence. How many of you think that you assessed your faith in Jesus purely on evidence? Or how many of you know somebody that says, oh, I would believe were the evidence only there? We all like to think that we're logical, reasonable people. Fact is, when we don't follow Jesus, it's not because God hasn't done enough to prove himself. We refuse to follow because we're naturally bent towards sin and self. We are default set against God. We are wired to demand to be the ones in charge. And what happens is we set for ourselves a standard of proof that changes every time we realize God wants surrender from us. People say they don't believe the Bible. The very moment the Bible teaches that there's something about morality that's different than what they want to do. But isn't it? Kind of logical that the morality of the Bible is going to be different than the morality of most folks? Why would anybody think that God is going to be like you? God's holy. 
God's ways are not our ways. But mankind loves to turn away from truth, to wallow in self, and then say, oh God, you haven't proved yourself to me. It ain't based on logic, friends. It's based on our deep desire not to be changed by God. And that's what you see right here. The evidence is right there for the crowd. They don't care. Romans 1.18 through 21 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. If you're hearing my voice, do not let your heart be darkened. Do not leave yourself without excuse. What should you then do? Point number four, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. 40 to 42 He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Here's the close of the scene. It's actually the close of a a big set of scenes with the temple as the backdrop that We've been walking through from chapter 5 all the way to here. Holiday and temple and all the rest. Time and time and time again, Jesus has shown himself to be the very God that the people are required to worship. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He's the only Savior. He's the fulfillment of everything that the temple and the Passover and the water ceremony and the light ceremony that they're all about. Here Jesus left, the, left Jerusalem. He went across the river Jordan to a place where John the Baptist used to baptize folks. Of course, by now in this book, John the Baptist is already dead, murdered by King Herod. But John the Baptist had done his job. John the Baptist called the people to turn away from their sin and to prepare themselves to meet Jesus. And the people over there by the river, they remembered John, of course. They remembered John's ministry. And they're like, They look and they see that Jesus really is the one John had been pointing to all along. Even though John the Baptist did no miracles, he spoke the truth about Jesus and the people recognize it. And then the chapter closes saying, many believed in him there. This, of course, is the point of the entire gospel according to John the disciple. He's telling us these things because he wants us to see them and believe in Jesus. 
Because he knows that believing in Jesus is the only way that we can have eternal life. So what do you do? Believe that Jesus claimed to be God. Believe that Jesus has the right to call himself God. Believe the works of Jesus prove that he's God. Believe in Jesus. This is the good news. Jesus is our salvation. Can I say something really good? You don't have to clean yourself up first to be forgiven. The gospel is not a gospel of you do. The good news is the good news that Christ has done it all. If you will entrust yourself to Jesus in faith, he'll forgive you and he'll save you and God will then work in you to change you. He'll make you better, but he won't make you better to save you. He'll make you better because he saved you. And when you believe, you join with the people of God in worshiping Jesus, God the Son. Let's pray together. Lord, it's a good day. This is a good word and a sweet, sweet gospel. I would plead with you, God, would you just see to it in your mercy that everyone who hears this believes in Jesus. Help us not to think, oh, we've got the evidence, we've figured it out, he hasn't proved himself. But instead, help us believe in Jesus. Be magnified. Change our lives. Help us to be those who share the love of Jesus with others. Build your church for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.